Hi, you're listening to Hoopleheads, a Deadwood podcast at MovieFail. My name's Soren Howe, and I'm here with Josh Rosenfield. And uh, it's been a thousand years since the last time we've recorded anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, we were looking at our last recording, which was sometime in uh, 2017, uh, which was over a year ago. It is now 2019. Um, so we've we've catapulted forward a bit, uh, and then the last time we did anything with Deadwood was, like even before that, that was you know probably beginning of 2017 at the at the at the um at the latest. So they started actually making the Deadwood movie in the time <laughs> since we last recorded. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. We took a little bit of a hiatus to uh, to record some Twin Peaks uh, episodes, uh, or sorry, some some podcasts about uh, the first season of Twin Peaks, which you can uh, check out. Uh, Ghostwood Radio, um, which you uh, can find right on MovieFail uh, under the podcast tab, um, and it's something that we're 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 certainly open to uh, coming back to in the future uh, if there's demand out there. Um, but we know that that people love uh, love Deadwood, and as Josh said, there's this new um, Deadwood movie coming out. Uh, so this has been in sort of gestating for a thousand years uh, as well, um, a lot longer than we've we've been off the air. Um, and, you know, bear in mind, Deadwood stopped airing in 2006 with season three, and there hasn't been, uh, anything since, you know, uh, David Milch has gone to do other things. The main cast have gone on to do other projects. Um, and, uh, you know, Breaking Bad came and went, uh, featuring Anna Gunn, who makes an appearance in this episode, which we can talk about. Oh my, you know, what I just realized is that so much like prestige television came and went in that gap. Like, exactly. That all, all of Mad Men. Um, all of Game of Thrones will have come in that gap. Yep. That's kind of crazy to think about, actually. Exactly. And then after all of that, they're going to do like a, a capper on, on Deadwood with, <laughs> with this movie. <laughs> um, and in that time, uh, quite tragically, uh, it turns out um, Powers Booth, who plays Cy Tolliver in the show, uh, has also passed away. So he will not be in the film, obviously, um, which will be uh, an interesting sort of uh, component of, of how they how they work with the story. Um, and that is, I am saying that. Now, I've seen Deadwood. I'm not entirely sure if he makes it to the end of the series, so it may actually not be all that consequential in that regard, but it is extremely sad regardless because Powers Booth is an awesome actor and um, uh, definitely something I identify, somebody I identify very strongly with the show itself. So um, it was very sad to hear about his passing, uh, I believe, last year. Yeah. I remembered that he died watching this episode and I just lay, just got sad again all over again because I had completely forgotten. And I don't think I've seen him in, I don't think I've seen him in anything I've watched since then. So it was just like remembering that he was an actor and then remembering that he died and, and watching this episode and remembering, Oh, he was a really good actor. Too. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And it's, um, uh, yeah, I mean, you get you get a lot of that in this episode. You get a lot of, uh, good, uh, <laughs> a lot of good sight Oliver moments. Um, <laughs> So with that said, uh, we're going to try something a little different with this uh, this new season, uh, and that is that we'll we'll give you a brief synopsis, sort of the the major beats of the episode, uh, and I'll I'll try and fill some in, and Josh can fill some in, and then we'll talk about the key key moments for us and, and things that jumped out to us without having to systematically go through every single <laughs> shot in the episode, um, which I think might be a bit. A bit easier, uh, both to listen to and also just to, you know, for flow of conversation, uh, to to move around thematically, maybe or, or, or in things that we're that we're most interested in. Um, so uh, this is a, a lie agreed upon, which is uh, an ep- the first of a two part, uh, I guess two part episode, 
Um, although each episode is its own, you know, full length uh, sort of thing. And, yeah, they um, didn't air. They didn't air together. It looks like. Yeah, they didn't air together, and and this is a not an uncommon thing in the show. You know, we've had episodes in the past that have been sort of two parters, um, and uh, at least thematically, if 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 nothing else. So, um, so that's one element, and the other element, of course, is that it was directed by uh, Ed uh, Ed Bianchi, who uh, directed a few of the other episodes uh, from season one, uh, No Other Sons or Daughters, I believe, and and uh, I think there was another one. Um, oh, what was it called? Oh, yeah, The Trial of Jack McCall. The Trial of Jack McCall. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a an episode sort of, I think, reorienting people to Deadwood. There's actually a moment where uh, Al literally says, you know, welcome to Deadwood. Um, and I think that it's a useful, it's especially useful for us because it's been a while, so... <laughs> Yeah, Just... seriously. It was I was I was actually pretty nervous about jumping back in like I don't remember any of these characters. I don't remember what's going on, but it was I I it wasn't that the episode so much was like a recap episode, but I very much like quickly fell into Oh right, this is what's going on. Right, I remember all this. And actually I remembered um, most of the cast, you know, the characters' names and things like that pretty quickly. I was surprised. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a big cast, but you know, it, they all sort of fell into place. Um, so the major things going on in this episode, uh, there's a new, a new carriage is showing up to town, uh, and carries with it some very specific cargo, which, uh, affects, um, uh, two, uh, different groups in the town. So the first of that, um, the first of them is, uh, uh, Seth. So we have his wife and child showing up. Um, and then on the other end of things, we have Maddie, who's a new character, um, who is, uh, sort of shaking things up with Sai and Joni. She's um, going to be the new madam at Joni's new establishment. Exactly. And that's so that's uh so that's the sort of the central conflict in that in that uh in that plot. Um we have obviously the the conflict of Seth uh, having this relationship with Alma Garrett um and then his uh, uh his wife and child are showing up um and then uh also with Seth you have this central um standoff with al uh over his his role as a it's not really clear to me we can talk about this in you know in a minute but uh it's it's sort of over his role as a sheriff and what the expectation was of him as being a sheriff which is something we talked about a lot last season uh i remember and uh because it's not really living up to what al was expecting or wants um there's a there's a, you know there's a friction there and then of course he takes it out by insulting Seth by targeting his relationship with Alma which is already a huge sore spot um, and then there's just this uh, palpable awkwardness that you know um, <laughs> permeates the rest of the episode uh, after his his wife and child arrive and I think that those you know those two things are are obviously uh, very related um, but I would say those are the two major things that happen in this episode. Yeah, I mean, just to launch right into it, awkwardness is, is the word in this episode, for sure. It is a lot, especially this sort of the second half of it, after the fight between uh, Al and Seth, it's very much people... Um, I'm thinking in particular, like, the, the, this key scene, the standout scene, the scene that the episode is named for, is in... Um, it was in Doc Cochran's... Uh, I don't want to call it a hospital. <laughs> His, uh, you know... Emergency room. Well, yes, he's where... not. Even, it's not. It's not even in his um his usual place. I think he's treating them in the hardware store. 
Oh, is he? Oh, I didn't even notice that. I yeah, because well, they have that. bodies laying on tables and stuff, but I think they're just in the hardware Oh, of store. course. That, yeah, no, yeah. you're absolutely right, yeah. Um, but that scene where, I mean, it is these characters who all are aware of a truth. Yeah. They're all aware <laughs> that Seth and Alma have been sleeping with each other. And they are all coming up with these falsehoods and just like, it's, it's, it's a funny scene. It's an awkward scene and a really uncomfortable scene, but it is funny in the way that they all are just immediately making up stories that all of them know to be false and just saying, all right, it is simpler if we just... And, you know, this is interesting thematically, too, that all these characters have basically agreed, look, it's just simpler if we don't talk about this. Yeah. It, It is less complicated if we all make up this version of the story we can have in our heads, even though it doesn't really matter to anyone but ourselves. Individ- on an individual level. Like, it's not like this story is meant to convince other people. Everyone is in on is in on the joke here. It's just, we need something to tell ourselves. Uh, like, like, the best moment is when, um, and, and here's our first example of me forgetting a character's name. Um, <laughs> oh, God. He, he escorted Alma to the hardware store. Oh, Ellsworth. Store. Yep. Ellsworth. He said, or is it Ellsworth? Maybe mm-hmm. it's not even him who says, like, oh, you know, we, we lose more mail than we deliver. Basically, oh, no, that's, that, was, that was Charlie Utter who says that. That was Charlie. Okay, yeah, that was Charlie. All right. We're getting back in the swing of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, the, uh, yeah, this, when he says we lose more mail than we deliver, coming yep. up with this excuse for why um, Seth wouldn't have written to his wife about Alma. Yep. Oh, well, you just didn't get the letter. Even though, obviously, like you can tell by the look on everyone's faces, and especially his wife's, that this is nonsense. <laughs> this is bullshit. Um but she accepts it because that is easier than dealing with reality. Yeah, I mean, so actually, the earliest example of that is is, is with Ellsworth, and it's in the um, it's when he's talking. Well, it's when so Seth goes to see Alma, and they, uh, well, first of all, the tutor who's Sarah Paulson, randomly yeah, is that, in Deadwood. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> in this fairly minor role, uh, I had forgotten she was uh, she was in this because um, she actually only appears in 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 uh, like she only shows up the first time in season two um along with several other you know actors and people that we that we know um uh but so so seth goes to see alma and uh immediately sarah paul sarah paulson's character uh, her um sophie's teacher takes uh takes her out of the room uh to go and and do tutoring elsewhere because she knows that this is just going to end in uh sex because it always does uh, and everyone seems to know that and as this is happening Ellsworth shows up because he's supposed to you know be overseeing this whole um this property uh and has this exchange with EB who's making these like really coarse dumb you know obvious tacky uh comments about Seth and Alma uh and uh, Ellsworth's like I don't want to hear it you know like I don't you know like that's we're not gonna you know make any clever remarks about this like uh, everyone is aware. Everyone in the the restaurant downstairs can hear like the floorboards creaking. Like they all know, <laughs> um, but like you don't have to like be weird about it. <laughs> and that's before his wife and child have even shown up. So by the time she shows up, um, but you have to. I mean, it's so. I have to, so I. Full disclosure, as as you know, I'm not the biggest Breaking Bad fan. Um, I enjoyed it well enough, but, um, and I didn't particularly particularly like. Anna Gunn's character in that. Uh, I know a lot of people really liked her character, uh, 
she wasn't that wasn't really my favorite performance of hers, but I had seen Deadwood, and she's so good in Deadwood, and her this episode she's so like oh this episode alone I like more than like all of all of Breaking Bad's um, Anna Gunn moments. I just think she's so tragic showing up in this town where first of all she shows up in her her she she doesn't know her husband right this is an important element is that seth is a um her brother-in-law it's her brother-in-law yeah like did they and again this is me not remembering what's happened has that been established to this point yes it has okay i didn't remember and it's it's part of the it's part of the sort of rationalization that as a viewer we make we go well yeah he has a wife and child but he has a wife and child because he sort of it was the done thing and he sort of you know wanted to support or maybe he was asked to by his brother or there was some there was some reason that he did it it might have been like a like a tradition thing or it might have been a um he was asked to but for whatever the reason he married his um his uh after his brother died he married his his wife um but they don't have any connection <laughs> there's no yeah. reason other than that for them to be together and so she doesn't really know him she's taking this chance to show up in town i mean he obviously didn't know she was coming um and it becomes immediately apparent that there's this open secret you know she's absolutely aware of it um and you know figures out very quickly and also she arrives in this in the middle of this brawl which is you know not the most you know welcome measure and she has to deal with all this and their conversations especially when they get to the house at the end are where they're just completely talking past each other are just so so well done but um but Anna Gunn in particular I think really just sells the scene yeah I thought she was really good in this episode I mean I liked her in Breaking Bad um I know you you're Thoughts on that series? I will say my thoughts on that series have kind of waned since Better Call Saul started and has been really, really good. <laughs> um, oh, interesting. But I always, yeah. you know, I I, I I like Anna Gunn on that show. Um, but yeah, she doesn't. There's not a lot of her here. So I'm sure she'll be in it more. She does a really good job of playing that. Just you can see sort of on her face the moment she realizes what's going on, uh, <laughs> and right. it's really tragic and heartbreaking because you you know especially for this woman i mean if i rewatched it it would this would probably come across more but yeah you're absolutely right like this woman who's meeting a husband she doesn't know uh with her son she's traveled to this place the the first (laughs) her first glimpse of this new town uh out the door of her carriage is her husband her new husband like completely covered in blood beating another being beaten to death by another man um and now she's learned that he's like having an affair it's mm-hmm. heartbreaking for her and she plays that really well this feeling of just like resignation of just all right like this is this is how it is and this sucks and i have no options basically like there's nothing i can do about it yeah you know um so she says something really weird when he uh when they finish speaking she says thank you um and i I'm just trying to parse what that means. There's a lot of ways that that could go, and it kind of depends on what her expectations were when she came in. On one hand, I... it could be that she was worried he would expect to slip into like a phys- like a physical relationship right away, or um, that he would be uh, resentful of her presence. Um, but you know, he's like, "Here's a house, a whole very nice house to live in that I built." 
and with us and yeah, with people. You know, it's like I think quite, it's, it's it's hard to say really what the context is. I took it as basically like thank you for giving us space because that whole yeah. scene is about how he's not coming into the house with them and that you know symbolically is about I'm not entering into your family right right now. You know, I don't and, know how reason and, and also he's... not forcing the you know to or sorry not drawing out this really awkward you know you know because it would force this. You know, in the beginning, he's trying to make these. He's like, "Well, you know, her. I wrote to you about her widow. You know, her husband died, so I had to look after her." And then she's like, "Yes, um, I get it." Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and and she just wants that line of conversation to just be over, and that that interaction to be over. Um, so yes, that, and then also yes, I think it is about the family, and you know that she has a relationship with her own son, obviously, but not so much with Seth. Um. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's, uh, uh, you know, it's it, it'll be. I'm I'm curious next episode for part two to see if these two episodes really are meant to go together. What the tone is supposed to be, you know, they're setting this new dramatic paradigm for season two, um, and seeing how those dynamics are going to fit into the uh, the community will be um, uh, good to see. And, and you know, on on the flip side of this, like I said, there was this other these other arrivals. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about, uh, about size reaction to, uh, Joni, uh, starting her, her own brothel with, uh, with Maddie? Yeah. Powers Booth is really good in this episode at playing this. It's not, it's, you can't call it a contained rage cause it's not at all contained, but just this sense of some, like a rage that is, has just begun to bubble over. Right. Like he's not, he's not really screaming. He's not, um, you know, being, uh, he's not flailing and he's not being like super uh, dramatic with his uh, physicality. It's just the sense of like this guy who is furious and he is not hiding it very well, but he is trying to hide it. Um, so like it, the, the instance of physical violence, like he starts throwing these little boxes at both of them. Right. And it's like, you can kind of tell, it's interesting because you can tell that like they're not, heavy right if it's not something that if you threw it at someone it would hurt it's just this gesture of contempt basically mm-hmm. this uh sort of he's, it's like he's miming physical violence because he he won't he, he's restraining himself from physically hurting these women mm-hmm. but he is like is there something in his body that like he just has to he can't stop himself well i mean he says you know in that in his last little monologue to the to the thoroughfare when he's standing on the balcony he says something about how you know, never say there's no such thing as a good woman. Uh, what was it? Unless uh, until you've seen one with maggots, with maggots in her eyes. In her eyes. So, yeah. You know, this. So for me, Sai is is like. You know, I don't know what his calculus is. It's still hard for me to tell. So a lot of last season, we were trying to figure out. You know, is he going to let Joni leave and do this? You know, her own thing. Um, I think he wasn't anticipating her having the wherewithal to call in reinforcements. Basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and and also to be working with um, uh, Eddie, um, because all of these uh, uh, other players were all sort of behind his back, helping him, uh, helping helping uh, Joni. And I think there's this male ego thing going on with him, where oh when, oh I mean, yeah, I mean obviously, but just it's it's so sir, like it's it's so at the surface you can see it. Um, that he just, it's this, la- this losing power, 
losing control of the situation, losing control over Joni. Um, and, you know, he has, of course, he has to remind her that he bought her for six and a half dollars uh, mm-hmm. back in the day. And, he, you know, he has to just do everything he can to make her feel as, um, you know, that she's worth basically nothing. And by the way, actually, it just occurred to me, there is a direct corollary to it. She, he uh, emphasizes the fact that um, uh, Joni is, was bought for six and a half dollars separately. Um, we don't know what the sum is, but it's supposed to be quite a large amount of money. Um, but Bullock and Alma have a whole conversation about her worth. And he goes, well, you're worth so much more than what it says on the paper, you know, and it's this, <laughs> this is a very different dynamic, obviously, but um, sort of women with monetary values. Um, <laughs> it seems to be a, a, a little bit of a pattern there. Um, yeah, what's... Um... What's interesting about the the Sai and Joni dynamic in this, as it plays out in this episode, is that you 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 got the sense from what I remember of the previous episodes that this is a situation where he gets he feels good because he gets to play the generous patriarch, mm. like oh I'm gonna help you open your business mm. and it's gonna be great I'm gonna let you you know him never really intending to do it him never him always knowing that he's always going to have one hand on her shoulder pulling her back. And she's never going to get out there, but he still gets the satisfaction of feeling like he's doing something right. good for this person he quote unquote loves. Um, and now here's the situation where she has wrenched herself away from him and on her own initiative is going to do this. And he is, I think, really humiliated in this episode. I think that's where that's where yeah, this that's is coming from. Is sure. He is completely humiliated by the way that she has um escaped from under his thumb and in the way in the in the end of that first scene of them together not um them on the balcony but later in the in his office um when he's saying oh i'm so i I feel like a kid again i'm I'm gonna i want to skip out of here like he it's it's so like there's just like venom dripping off those words but it Mm. is the same act that he's been performing of just like pretending that he really cares about her and pretending that he really wants to help her do this and, and help her have a life of her own. But he can't help making her fully aware of the fact that he's livid. And, you know, it's like he's ge- he gave her basically this uh, opportunity uh, to, to, you know, he gave her, you know, and maybe it was meant symbolically, as he said, um, but she was like, all right. And then she took it very seriously, put mm-hmm. all the pieces in place. Uh, it used her assets to, 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 you know, and her connections to, build something up and now she's ready to move out and has a whole plan uh, and it's not just her and it's not just her money and it's not just um, she's not alone she's doing this with others uh, and that's uh, uh, you know for him you know he's like well you know I, I wasn't expecting you to actually do it I mean this is <laughs> you, know, you know this is the deal you know we're supposed to have this special relationship um, but the whole thing is so toxic it's so messed up you know his, his relationship with her is deep I mean he's a pimp I mean, he's literally a, he's just a pimp right that's his yeah. whole thing um it's hard to have a good relationship with a person who you purchased. Yeah, no kidding. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, uh, you know, what kind of person does that? You know, what kind of person starts a gambling prostitution house? You know, you have Cy and Al. They're not exactly the the friendliest, um, yeah. nicest people in the world. Um, and unlike, I would say, Al, where we see occasionally a soft side to him, um, you know, with Jewel. Yeah, in this and, episode, actually. Yeah, and actually in this episode, that's true. Exactly. You never get that really with Sai. I mean, he, he has some yeah. sort of affection or something for Joni, but, you know, there's no soft side of Sai really. It doesn't seem like. Um, yeah, why don't we uh, why don't we talk a bit about um, 
well, so, before we get into the, the, the standoff and the, the Al's introduction, um, or Al's uh, moments in this, this episode, I'll start with his introduction, which uh, it opened on, on I, I, I don't know if you, you've noticed this shot, but it opens behind Al. We don't actually open on a shot of Al. Um, and we, we, we see his henchman reacting to him as he's as he's talking um and i you know it's it's very clear by season two that they're already aware that you know ian mcshane is yeah the like, guy and, and, and this is the character that people are latching on to yes exactly, so, exactly you know not to be too cynical but like from a marketing perspective yeah that's the character who you want to kind of stage a little reveal of him yeah exactly of just opening on him he's the tony soprano of this this series right like the, yeah. we're realizing this is the guy yeah so um and and you know it, and it's not like he wasn't already, you know, the center of everything that was going on anyway. But um, the first season definitely seemed to make Seth. And, you know, Seth certainly has, I mean, in, in screen time, I bet he has more in this episode. Actually, I think he has way more. Um, you still feel like Al's really the main character. <laughs> it's like this weird. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's, it's I mean, it, it, it is an ensemble show very much. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it's... Not unique for HBO, obviously, to have kind of an anti. I, I mean, you can't even really call Al an anti-hero. He is he is a bad person, and he's not. <laughs> but he is a and he you know, he's a terrible person. But he's a likable person. That's very HBO. Um, and he's someone who you uh, don't you don't sympathize with him, or I, mean, I should say you don't empathize with him. But it is very easy to feel like I kind of want to see how you know his. Uh, intentions play out yeah and you and you um, want to see what his and you want to see what his um uh you know you kind of want so you say he's not an anti-hero but it depends who the who the what the contest is and i think that's well yeah, that's a great point yeah you know but if it, he's he's not an anti-hero if you're talking about the people in the town but if you're talking about the u.s government or if you're talking about the people who are much bigger than Deadwood. I mean, there's so much drama that goes on in like six buildings <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> um, in I think it's it's North Dakota. Um, yeah. And but you know, meanwhile, you know, everything you learn about in history is happening, you know, across the country. And you know the you know I, I don't know when the Louisiana this is very embarrassing. I'm not a history major. Um, but you know the Louisiana Purchase and now all of you know there's this entirely new swath of um. Of, of America that's being, you know, just constantly new states, new boundaries, new lines, new governments are being put in place. And that's actually how this whole thing starts, is that um, we get a little bit of insight into um, last season's decision from Al to, to back Seth for for um, uh, for Sheriff. And here he just comes out, you know, we spent a lot of time trying to parse what the reasoning was, but he just comes out and says it here that, you know, he's he sees the writing on the wall, the government's coming, and we need to have a government man in our corner or we're not going to have anything to negotiate with because they're not going to have any interest in us. We don't have any legitimacy in their eyes. You know, a, a brothel owner is not going to be able to, uh, you know, swing it as like the local commissioner or the governor or whatever. But a sheriff who was an actual law enforcement officer might have a bit more sway. And that was sort of what he was going for. Um, but he's furious that Seth is distracted with Alma. Yeah, what I like about Deadwood, uh, one of the things I like about Deadwood is that there's not, and again, it's like we've so so much, I know we do this so much, but like to draw a comparison to Game of Thrones, or the other show we do a podcast about, <laughs> this is not a narrative where you are incentivized to like pick horses, Right. where it's like, oh, well, I want this person to win. Right. Um, I want this person to do well. It's not, 
there's no, you know, there really is no contest, like you said, in that sense. Or e even on, even on something like The Sopranos, um, there's no, there is kind of there is kind of overarching conflict between characters, but it is more about um, more minor. Not I shouldn't even say minor. Like it's more about personal drama and personal um, conflict than any sort of like overarching political, uh, you know, worldly uh, battle between two distinct force, two or more distinct forces with their own very distinct agendas. Um, everyone on Deadwood kind of has their own agenda, and sometimes that lines up with other people, and sometimes it doesn't with the same people, and that's what makes it, for me, kind of compelling to watch, because not a lot of TV is like that, even now. Um, yeah, there's usually you know, an enemy. A lot of TV is the, about who yeah. you root for. Yeah. That's what people kind of talk about, is who are you... And that was, you know, especially with Breaking Bad, what a, you know, the, the consternation, the angst in uh, the discussion over Breaking Bad of whether or not you should root for Walter White. Right, right, right. Like, it doesn't matter, man. Just just watch the show. <laughs> and you know, it's funny, because I, I started to find it difficult in Breaking Bad to root for, um, to, I, I was, I rooted for Walter White in the beginning, and then like towards the middle, as many people did, started to go, mm, are we really, this guy kind of sucks. But, it really felt like it was him versus these like drug kingpins or like the villain of the season kind of thing. Um, and that's certainly, you know, it's Tuco, I think in season one and then later it's Gus and all the rest of them. Um, and then it's him versus humanity or I don't know, whatever in the last season, um, I guess the police uh, <laughs> or something. So, hmm. um, you know, and then game of Thrones, certainly there's the villain of the season, right? You know, there's, uh, uh what's his face? Ramsey and, um, uh, Joffrey. The kid, Joffrey. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's like these clear, you know, villainy characters. Deadwood, yeah, Deadwood doesn't really do that. But there is this conflict and there is this fundamental conflict between, I don't even know what to, how to describe it, this like libertarian. Like, I mean, it, it kind of is. It kind of is like the, like the libertarian dream. Libertarian dream versus, it is. And this, yeah, actually, you know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, take for that what you will. It doesn't look like a fun time. I don't know. Um, but <laughs> we'll leave that aside. But, you know, and, and then the, the, the contrast of that is the government um, and is the fact that there's going to be, a, um, you know, they're, they're starting to divide up the hills, they call it, but I guess North Dakota Hills, which is where Deadwood is, uh, into counties. And there's going to be commissioners and they're all not from the area. Um, and so it's this like, you know, the big city types coming in to tell us what to do kind of thing. Uh, and, and I don't think, you know, it's not so much, I think that's sort of what like the, the person on the ground might think Al's argument is more just, I can't keep doing what I'm doing if there's people I can't control in some way coming in to, to you know, to deal with this. And so like his, his issue with the Yankton people coming in to, to, um, which I guess is the nearest, uh, large town or city coming in to, uh, to become commissioners um, isn't that they're from Yankton. I don't think he particularly cares about that. It's just that he doesn't have any leverage over them because they're from Yankton because he doesn't know who they are. Um, that's the issue. It's not that they're not you know, rural types who can sort of cut it in Deadwood. That's not what he cares about. Um, it's really this conflict with this more civilizing elements of <laughs> the Union. You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, I want to kind of talk about the, I want. I want to talk about the direction. Mm. Uh, we talked about. Um, uh, I've already Ed Bianchi. Yep. 
And I also want to talk about the editing in this opening segment because I think it is sort of to what, to what we've been talking about. Uh, the way that the opening, I guess you could call it act, of this episode is structured is so unlike the way television works. Um, where usually in television you have a scene and then a scene and then a scene and the scene be- each scene begins and then it goes and then it ends and then there's the next scene. Right. Um, like, like, you know, this is how almost all traditional television works. Right. Um, I was thinking certainly it, Game of Thrones because it's, oh yeah, it's so it's location like, and storyline based. So there's the scene in the north and then the scene in the King's Landing. and then the Yeah, scene it, it, Game of Thrones, every episode, the opening titles tell you what the scenes are going to be. Right. Yeah. Like it, yeah. it is very, it's like Lego, it's like sticking Legos on top of each other. <laughs> it um, is. <laughs> it's, that's what it is. Um the opening scene, the opening sequence of this episode is not that. It, it cuts, and this is like revolutionary for, for television. It cuts back and forth between two scenes as they are both simultaneously happening. Um, and movies, like, movies figured this out sometime in like the 1920s. <laughs> they've been doing this, they've been doing um, montage for quite a while. Right. Television doesn't do montage, television does, you know, very straightforward narrative. And this is not, and I found that really, really interesting. And I think it, it, it comes, what, what it does is it communicates, because what it's cutting between is Al and his uh, minions sort of discussing the, the, the appointment of the thing. commissioners. Mm-hmm. And Al is getting more and more frustrated. And then, the, and it's um, Seth and Alma. Right. And the tension between them is becoming greater and greater and starting to boil over. And it's just going back and forth as these two sort of threads are are heating up and these two characters are both, uh, you know, heating up, literally in one case. Um, yeah, right. And then it comes, and then it stops and it comes to a head. And I was going to say, it leads them, directly to their conflict. The two of them have a fist fight. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's just so brilliant. And like TV... So often, even with really good television, uh, you're not thinking a lot about form, and you're not thinking a lot about like uh, the elements of filmmaking, where where you, the way you would treat a movie, uh, the way you would look at a movie, you're not sort of trained to look that way at television. Not because people who watch television are stupid, but because the way that television is constructed doesn't train a viewer to need to look at it that way. Um, but this episode is very much taking like very old cinematic techniques, very simple cinematic techniques, and using them really effectively. And you just like you you don't you don't see that very often. And I thought that was really cool. Yeah, there's a, there's another scene actually just in, in that same not in the first sequence, but you know uh, when when they're when Seth goes to so just as a, a recap for for folks if you it's been a while. Um, so Seth is. Uh, walking through the thoroughfare and then Al decides to berate him from his balcony about, uh, and makes a very clear public open, again, this open secret that everyone knows, um, reference to the fact that he was with, uh, Alma Garrett, uh, having sex with Alma Garrett, um, just moments before, uh, and Seth takes this very seriously cause he's already kind of, uh, you know, he's, he's, in this weird in-between um, 
you know, he's he's sort of in this honeymoon phase of this relationship. And of course, shortly afterwards, it's also even more complicated because his, his, his wife and child show up. Um, but he takes this very, you know, he's like, how could you say anything about my love? This love, basically, is his <laughs> reaction. And um, he goes for satisfaction to, his, uh, to, to Al's office. Um, and uh, shortly afterwards, a, a fist fight breaks out. But in that sequence where he goes to his office, there's also this whole back and forth between Seth and Alan. As that's happening, it keeps cutting to... Uh, so Saul and Charlie Utter are there. Um, but so is um, uh, uh, Dan Doherty um, and Silas, who are both there um, on, on Al's behalf. And they're all having their sort of little standoff downstairs. Um, that it's cutting to, but it's dead silent when it cuts to them. So it's using the the audio of the of what's of yeah. the conversation. I, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, because... I, I actually thought my my uh, stream was messed up for a second. I was like, is this? <laughs> and then I was like, oh, I you know, I, I get it. No, it's good. It's good because uh, sometimes that happens. You know, the audio gets mismatched. But no, it's it's intentional. It's very intentional. And um, you're seeing the tension build up down there, and it all comes to this head. Um, but what a really cool through line to this whole. Um, episode that's also I think I don't know if you I'm, maybe, I'm sure you noticed this but there's there's this clear line in the sand drawing that has been going on since last season but it, it, into the season between Silas and Dan as well mm, with yep. with how their their attitudes uh, to how they work with um, Al um, and also just their own personalities so uh, there's an an early moment uh, that happens in this in this opening segment that you were talking about where uh, Al slams on the table, and Dan. It cuts to Jan- Dan specifically to show that he jumps, but Silas doesn't. Yeah, um, which and- is interesting because the main source of their conflict is that is that Silas stops Dan from uh, shooting right. Seth, and in that moment, Silas is the one being very deferential to Al. He says, "It's not your kill." Right. Um, he is the one who he stops him because he is he wants to his his way of serving Al. Is to let him is to let Al do his business, whereas Dan's way of serving Al is to do Al's business. Um, so yeah, in that moment, it's interesting Very that good. Dan yeah, jumps yeah. because he is that their perspectives almost swap in that key moment. Yeah, well, I mean, it, I mean, in some ways they might swap, but I, I think that is, but it is very true to who they are, and it's also this. I think there's something about Dan. Dan's a much more emotional person, and yeah. uh, you know, he's also quite the fact, despite the fact that he's sort of the. Um, uh, the hitman for or like enforcer guy. <laughs> um, he's got like he's been shown to have a, a soft spot in the past, and I think he really likes Al, or you know, and he you know he doesn't want Al to get hurt. You know, it's not that he doesn't want him to get hurt, but he doesn't want him. To, he certainly doesn't want him to die. Um, and he has this you know sort of knee jerk emotional reaction, like someone's attacking my master, my boss, whatever you know his react is. His it's not really clear. His his dad, whatever he thinks of Al as. Um, and he's like, oh, I gotta do something to get this uh, person off, and it's sort of this emotional reaction. And Silas is like, No, man, you gotta just <laughs> let it happen, <laughs> right? Because it's, <laughs> it's not, you know, you gotta think about this a little bit more. And he, clearly, he's much more of a like calm, collected, thinking type than than Dan. Um, which isn't to say Dan's stupid. I think that's been made pretty clear that Dan's not an idiot, but he's not he's not like a planner in the same way that Silas is, and he's certainly not thinking about things like you know it's not his gear your kill like that kind of that's not like the way dan thinks um so yeah so that was definitely a like a, a recurring uh a recurring theme in the episode 
um, that I think, you know, we'll continue to see. He was already, you know, sort of on thin ice last season uh, where he was sort of muscling into being, you know, one of Al's guys. Uh, and Dan was like, you know, we've already got a bunch of guys. Like, why are you here? <laughs> what is this? <laughs> um, but Al clearly sees a lot of value in him. Um, and he's he's delivering. I mean, he starts the episode delivering this information about the government. And he clearly, you know, rode all day without taking any, you know, wherever he was coming from, he didn't take any breaks or anything because he, you know, hadn't even taken a bath yet. Yeah, it's it, the uh, the one the only uh, one of the henchmen so far, I expect, except for EB, who, and I just want to quickly note the moment in this episode where uh, Al does his impression of EB is hilarious. Oh, it's so good too. Um, it's really good. <laughs> It's like I didn't. I, I have that in my I notes. I said, talking. you know, it's it was a phenomenal. Incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the one we didn't talk about is Johnny, Johnny Burns, Johnny, yeah. who shoots Saul, right, and Charlie. And this is again, this is you know, the contrast to Dan and the contrast to Silas. Right. He just like no hesitation. He just does it. He just starts shooting. Yeah, J- Johnny actually is an idiot though. Yeah, like, that's, that's the thing, <laughs> and he feels he feels bad about it. Like, he is so, like, if Dan had shot Seth, he would have maybe felt bad about whatever consequences came from that, but there would have been no, like, emotional regret for killing him, whereas Johnny is very much, when EB comes back with news, he's like, are they okay? Like, are they going to be okay? Right, like, right, you, right. Sh- you tried to, you shot them with the intent to kill. Yeah, right. And, but he clearly, like, regrets doing that because it was just this, like, moment of instinct. Exactly, exactly. And he's not really, uh, like, I don't know if he's killed anyone. I I doubt it. I would very much doubt if he had. Yeah, I don't think he has. I think he's maybe helped sort of set things up, but I don't think he actually has killed anyone, whereas Dan actually has. Um, so yeah, he's uh, he definitely gives the impression of he may not be younger, but he gives the impression of like a young kid. Um, yep. Even though, he, for all I know, he's the same age as everyone else. Um, so yeah, no, there's definitely this this weird dynamic with the with them, and then of course E.B. Farnham is. I wouldn't call him even a henchman anymore. He's so, so nothing to Al. Um, you know, he's, he's... <laughs> what, is, he's, what does Al say? Like he says, "If you touch me again, I'll put your nose through your brain." Yeah, <laughs> an incredible yeah. line. There's so many good lines in this episode. Um, most of them are so vile, I can't really repeat them, but they're so good. Um, they're, <laughs> like they're really excellent. And also, we get a Hoopleheads uh, shout out. So we thanks, do. Yep. Thanks to uh, Ian McShane. Uh, uh, friend of the show. Um, I'm glad they wrote that in. It's you can tell they're listening. <laughs> um, so I really appreciate that. Uh, and then the the I guess that's oh so there's there's one um, there's just one thing I'll, I'll mention just quickly about the the so Seth clearly is not really he has the capacity to be a good sheriff from what we know of him, but he's really emotional and not just angry, which we saw a lot of last season. Now he's like love struck so there's no like he's not really doing his job so he this whole incident with bummer dan and slippery dan <laughs> which this is great because it's I, i'm glad we're getting I, I really want to talk about this scene because it is so it's like it's out of a different show it's, it's like bizarre. it's it's like it's it's like something from an edgar wright movie like <laughs> the, these two bummer dan and slippery dan are, are edgar wright characters um <laughs> so just to recap, they hear a gunshot coming from this like sort of like you can. It's funny because like you can tell it's the dive bar. Even in a town like Deadwood, there's there's a bar that's a dive bar. Um, there's a gunshot, and the bartender says, um, "I just shot Bummer Dan, 
but I thought it was Slippery Dan. Right. Slippery Dan was was pissing on the floor, <laughs> and I told him, "If you come, get out, and if you come back, I'll shoot you." And then Slippery Dan gave his coat to Bummer Dan and told him to go in there and piss on the floor right. as a joke. And the bartender shot Bummer Dan. Right. And Seth gets there and he hears this story and he basically says, "Man, I don't know." Yeah, he was like, <laughs> "There's well, basically nothing. There's nothing I could do about this." Yeah, he's like, "Look, you didn't mean to kill him. Um, it wasn't the one you meant to kill." So, like, there's no concept of manslaughter in this world. Yeah. Yeah. There's no. I, I mean, and this is this is I think a, an interesting comment on the era. It's like you have this situation where it's like someone's dead, but it's not like. It's not like the bartender's a bad guy. First of all, you had much looser restrictions around, like, uh, when it was acceptable to, to shoot someone in the right. head. And you have this situation where it's like, well, you didn't mean to kill him. And even if you did, maybe that would have been justified. And you can't really say that Slippery Dan, like, in in the in 2019, Slippery Dan would absolutely have been culpable in this situation. Yeah. I think he says, what does he say? Both of them say, like, what's my... Yeah, what's um, my, my culpability or, or responsibility? Yeah, what's or, my culpability? Basically, yeah, what, what am I culpable for? And what Seth Seth has to throw up his hands. He has to basically say, look, I don't know. Neither of you, I can't, not, neither of you did anything I could in my time reasonably arrest you for. So, so I, so I, two things about this. One is, I would say, yes, and, and you have to imagine if these Yankton commissioners were overseeing the town, you might see a different response and maybe that's the kind of thing Al would like to keep going on one hand on the other hand it might also be reasonable to expect and I don't know what sort of the expectation would have been at the time but there was clearly a lot of um, you know there were consequences to people getting killed like Bill Hickok for example um, oh yeah but that was a murder, obviously. But I'm just saying that there were consequences to this. That was also someone people like cared about. Yeah, but you people, don't get the yeah, sense exactly. that the guy named Bummer Dan has a lot of people who are going to be up in arms about it. Yeah, his except death. for Slippery Dan, who's the most sad about it. It seems like. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, he's like a little stupid joke. Um, and so I don't know that, in fact, that there wouldn't be some punishment at the very least, like some small reprimand, like you know, you have to yeah. sit in the county jail for like, or in the town jail for like overnight or something. Um, and then that's it, you know, something. I think part of the thing here is that Seth isn't really, his head's not in the game. So like whatever rules he would enforce, he's like, oh, I mean, seriously, we have other things to deal with right now. I've got other stuff in my <laughs> mind and he just like walks out. Um, so it's a, it's a mix of things, but there's certainly, yes, yeah, so there's definitely this contrast with, you know, what you would expect, you know, law enforcement to, to do something uh, to maybe arrest some, I mean, just what we would expect, you know, in, in, in modern society and certainly slippery Dan for, um, uh, accomplice to murder or accomplice to manslaughter or whatever. I don't know what those, what that would be, but yeah, no, you would, you would certainly expect that. Um, it, it plays out like this almost like absurdist existential, uh, like one act, like just it, it, scene. Um, and I'm interested in, I'm interested to see going forward, how much of that is going to play into what this show is. Um, how much more stuff like that we're going to see. Because I think I can see this scene going forward being kind of a keystone thematically for this season. Interesting. This idea of, this idea that basically things can happen and it's not really for any comprehensible reason. It's not really anything that's in your control. It's just the conflicting interests of different people 
are going to bounce off each other and terrible things can happen, but there's not one person who you can say this person's directly responsible. Um, and that's going to, that, that's an interesting thing I think for Seth to explore as a law enforcement official in this town at so much of this show is about these people with very disparate interests uh, bouncing off each other and things that happen that might not, that you can't really directly trace back to any one of them. Yeah. Yeah. That's certainly true. Um, you know, there's this, uh, well, I mean, thinking back to another sort of, uh, sort of aspect of that is, is this, um, is this open secret about his relationship with Alma Garrett, right? When they're all, Mm-hmm. And 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 how these if if this is I don't know I mean I, I generally don't remember if this is going to be um, something that we uh, we see later on in the season but um, it manifests a little bit in, in sort of this humorous way um, so that scene though in the in the when they're all recovering from the brawl in the street um, and they're having this awkward uh, conversation with uh, Martha and Alma about. Uh, just whatever the small talk, but it's clearly about the fact that they're having an affair. Um, it's absolutely the beats in that in that scene are played like a comedy scene. Um, mm-hmm. I was distressed, but I mean, it is like, but I could feel it, you know, timed exactly like this is exactly when the joke would be in "It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia" or like some <laughs> other show. Like that's the that's the joke. She showed up in the the place, and you know, awkward. Um, and then someone's going to say something sort of like, well, you know, it's time to hit the road now or something like that. And then that's exactly when that moment happens and it all plays out, but it's all sort of, you know, it's Deadwood. So it's kind of grim. Um, it's not, it's interesting how comic timing and tension, um, like if you, if you line, if you could visualize those two and line and like overlay them on a projector, they would line up really well. Oh yeah. Um, well, I like think comedy, you, it, yeah, breaks it. It breaks it, and it's a great way to break. I mean, comedy, the yeah, yeah. The comedy is about is about tension and release, right? And yeah, this that's I think why this scene is structured that way, or why it feels like it's structured that way, is because it is this in, incredibly tense and awkward um, scene. But it is like it, it's it's hard to get that across without constructing it the same way that you would construct the comedy version of it just because those two in terms of filmmaking those two um tones are, are sort of weirdly similar yeah they are very similar and and it's the same in that other scene right so you know somebody's been shot oh no what's the you know and so there's tension there and then as the story becomes more apparent you know all, all the tension's gone by the time he leaves the bar <laughs> oh that, that's what happened <laughs> That's nothing, and there's no consequences for anyone, and everyone just goes about the rest of their life. Of course, a man's dead, but you know that's not that's sort of beside the point. Um, yeah, no, no, I definitely agree. And actually, it's funny that you say that about that scene. I wonder if you could just take that scene out, the one in the bar, completely decontextualize, show it to somebody. I bet they would understand what happens. Like, I don't. There's not. You don't need any context. Oh, for yeah. the show, which shows yeah. how disconnected it is from the show. It's just like a day in the life kind of moment. And that scene, like the scene in the hardware store, you if you add, you could add a laugh track to it. And yeah, it no, play. definitely, exactly, exactly. I would say that you know you take out some of the creepy guitar music that often plays in this show, and um, add in a little bit of, uh, uh, yeah, add a laugh track, a little, little some 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 bouncier guitar music maybe, and uh, yeah, you could you could totally sell this as a, as a comedy in scenes, in certain scenes, in other scenes not so much. Um, 
but yes, definitely. Uh, so the we didn't uh, mention this uh, one bit, but as you said, um, when the reason they stop fighting, or the reason that Al doesn't actually knife Seth, is that he sees uh, Seth's son, who is, um, well, I guess it was his nephew, now is his son, um, and he can't bring himself to 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 stab him um, in the back, which would be the Al way, um, and uh, you know, so again, this is another sort of little point in Al's. Um, in Al's, you know, sort of, they're building up this sympathetic core for him that he has that, you know, clearly all ties back to his relationship with his brother, I think it was, that he's talked mm-hmm. about in the past. Um, yeah. So it's de- that's definitely uh, something that we've, we've seen before. And it's interesting because it could play, it could play as so trite. Right. Like the scene of like, oh, the bad guy sees a child and all of a sudden right. he yeah. can't bring himself. Yeah, but it doesn't feel like, like that could... at all. Exactly. Yeah, it feels well because we know what because we know what we know about this character, and because this character is not, as we talked about, not just a bad guy as we as we conceive of bad guys. Right. Um, but more than that, the way that the scene, it's not just that he sees a kid; it's that um, the mother is covering the kid's eyes. Right. And all of a sudden, he's like, "All right, I." It's the. It, it's almost like this feeling of. It's about how he's being perceived, but also about he knows because obviously he doesn't know that this is um, Seth's kid. Right. He has no way of knowing. Right. That. Right. Right. Um, and that would be one thing if he did know, because for a second I was for a second I was like, does he know that? Because that would be an interesting thing too. If he's like, well, I'm not going to kill this kid's dad. In yeah. Front no. Of him. And later it's made very clear he had no idea. Exactly. Yeah. And that's and that's what's interesting about this moment is he has no idea the significance that this would have for this kid. But there's something inside him that still recognizes that, that that still does realize that. Like even if he has no context for it, he understands that. Like I, I'm not gonna stab this man in the back in front of this child. Like there's a reason this kid's mother is covering his eyes. Right. So actually, as you're saying that, I'm having this. I'm really like, it's just so this this it's so interesting to put a bunch of um of uh, of of uh, prostitutes and and across you know in the same carriage with uh seth's uh yeah there's some there's some some something suggestive about that there's something and suggestive not... that in a, in a lot of different ways um and as you were saying that i was thinking about that so on one hand you have uh seth's wife and son so martha and uh, was it william i think it's william yeah um so you have martha and william showing up and you know the, the covering of the eyes is almost like a moral standard is being brought into the town, which Seth is sort of lost. <laughs> he's, he's sort of all over the place. Um, I don't think he's a he's like become immoral, but I think that you know, you know, it's sort of there's a gray line there for him. Um, and Al certainly doesn't operate with any sort of moral compass whatsoever, uh, for, the, <laughs> for the most part. Uh, and so you know, so that's being introduced to the town. And at the same time, you have you know prostitutes, which could be seen as as you know sort of the opposite of this married family life kind of standard traditional morals. I'm going to say morals. I don't mean morals objectively, like this is the thing that is moral, but sort of morals as it is understood in, in the culture, which is, you know, you get married so, life. Social protecting, mores, Yeah, exactly. Say. Yeah. Protecting children from, you know, violence and sex and whatever. Um, although, of course, they're in this this carriage together. So, I mean, how... how, how and there is this, but you know, uh, Martha sees William sort of staring at at uh, at the woman across from him's chest. Um, so you you see this 
you know, it's just, it's very clear. And then um, the two parties represent two different, uh, two exact opposites, which is that Martha and William sort of represent a, a, a tying down sort of imprisonment. I mean, it's a horrible way to think about, you know, families, <laughs> marriage or whatever, but, you know, constricting what Seth can do and can't do now that they've arrived. But separately, Maddie arriving um, frees Joni. So it's like this freedom and, and sort of constriction uh, contrast as well, um, tied into morals. And, you know, it, it, immorality being linked to freedom and, you know, morality being linked to be, being tied down is also a, a thing, obviously, that is very important to um, you know, the central thesis of Deadwood. Well, I was thinking it suggests something about, and we gotta, we gotta just stop saying uh, the wife. What's her character's name? Martha? I forgot. Martha. Yeah. It, it's, it suggests something about the circumstances that Martha and Seth find themselves in, where, like, she is not being prostituted to him, but, like, this is not the man she loves. Right. This is not the relationship that she agreed to. Right. You know, we don't know the, we don't know the full circumstances. We don't know whether she... Um, had any say in what would happen to her after her husband died. But I think that the sort of symbolism of her arriving in a carriage full of prostitutes suggests that she had very little say in that. Mm. Um, it, the, I, I think it, it uh, conjures this idea that, and, and this is maybe why she thanks Seth at the end for being respectful, for not being intrusive, mm-hmm. for giving, and like I said, for giving them space because she didn't know what she was going to get when she went out there. She right. didn't know what his expectations were going to be of her that she would have no choice but to follow. And what she finds when she gets there is that he really has no expectations of her. And in fact, he's not really interested in her romantically um, or even sexually. So, Which might free her, her up in that sense as well. Exactly. I think absolutely that's, I think she is feeling, and now she has a house. She has somewhere to live mm-hmm. with her, somewhere to raise her son. And she doesn't have, I think she came into the town expecting to be in this situation where, like you say, she was tied down. She was restricted because now she has to be the wife to this man she doesn't know. Um, but now she finds herself in a situation where maybe that doesn't have to be the case. Right. Yeah. I mean, certainly. And, and, and maybe that doesn't have to be the case for Seth. We'll see, you know, we haven't seen, we've seen Seth and Alma, they certainly embrace at the end, but there's no clear evidence that they'll continue their relationship. Um, so we don't, we have no idea what's going to happen there. And similarly, we don't know what Martha's going to do now that she's in the town with this very open sort of embarrassing thing going on. Um, so will that, will the appearance of their marriage or the, the reality of their marriage uh, and how that's perceived by the community keep them from doing other things, or will it allow them to each have their own lives romantically? Will they try and make family life work? Um, that's unclear. Um, but certainly, yeah, I think she definitely, in the beginning, represents this constriction. And I, I don't think it's it's not uh, you know it's not it's not her fault or Seth's fault or anyone's fault. It's just the fact that they got married, and they got married really for what seems like honor reasons, um, and not much else. Well, and, and to support her, I think, is the yes. idea. Like To make sure she had, like, you know, she was supported. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and that, that I assume that's the idea that if this was her husband's idea, Seth, Seth's brother's idea, I assume that was the point, is that so she would have someone to... To look after her. To look after her. And in those days, I guess, the way that you had to do that is you had to get married. Like, I, that's something I'm not... And I'm not an expert on the uh, social politics of uh, the Old West, but... 
I guess I guess I mean know, that's w- biblical. W- women had many less rights back then, and I'm sure that's part of why, like, she couldn't on her own in that in those days really make a life for herself and her son. Like, she kind of needs to be tied to any man at that at that point. Well, I mean, like, I mean, it, it really is a biblical thing. I mean, I don't, and again, I don't yeah. know what the oh, reason yeah. was, but I mean, biblically, you were supposed to. Ma- I mean, that is like, I think it's like a, a like a commandment or something. You're supposed to marry your um, your if your brother's wife. Uh, if your brother dies, you're supposed to marry, you know, his widow. That's I would be interested to, to know if that was at all practiced back then, or if this is just a deliberate sort of biblical reference. Good point. Yes, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think we really have the full story there. I think it was, yes, that's a good point. We really don't have the, the background. We've been given little little dreams and drabs, but we don't have a full understanding. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we can certainly see how that, how to, you know, at the very least, what we do know is that they have very little in common, but they're not she doesn't seem resentful of him and he doesn't seem resentful of her. They're just kind of awkward. It's like they're going on a first date and have never met and don't have really any chemistry. <laughs> yeah. It's really the way it feels. Um, so uh, the last two bits I had, if you have anything else, feel free to, to throw them in. I just want to mention Calamity Jane. I think maybe the first time we've yes, seen her in episode, several I episodes. Uh, I, I didn't know she was kind of going to come back because she kind of, she leaves about halfway through last season and right. Like literally leaves the town, right? And I had no expectation of her coming back or not coming back. So it was, it's literally one shot of her. Yes, it's one shot of, on of the her. Outskirts of town, yeah. but I was really happy to see her. Yeah, she's great, um, and I'm excited to uh, see. I assume you know to. Well, she was always in the credit sequences, despite the fact she wasn't in the episodes. Like she was in the opening credits, um, and she by showing her in this episode, I think it's an implication that she'll have a more of a role moving forward. But there's a lot of characters that didn't have huge roles or almost any role in this in this episode. Doc Cochran um, barely had anything uh, to do with so it. He has one of my favorite lines um, when the when the reporter says to Martha, oh, you should uh, you should um, you know, give us some of your thoughts. Tell us the story of your long journey and give us your first impressions of the town. And Doc Cochran says something like, um, they don't have to be all your impressions. Because obviously <laughs> she's standing in this room of these two men who've been shot, whatever, right. bleeding out. Yeah, he's good with, uh, he's good with those, those, those back. But he's, <laughs> he's often a center, central character to an episode. Um, you know, we didn't have a single close-up of him. Um, so it's just, you know, it's unusual. Well, they for said his... something about how he had to come in from another location, right? He had to, they had to call him back from somewhere else. Yeah, he was in white something, white white forest, white wood, something like that. Something like um, that. Which I guess maybe was some other town, uh, which might explain why he didn't have his office open or if it wasn't ready yeah. or something like that. Um, but that's that hasn't been elaborated on. Again, we only saw part one of what looks like it could, you know, it's a two-part story. So there may be some more um, elaboration there. Um, the other thing that in this in this episode, just to reemphasize, because they're really big on this, and I always love it uh, when they start talking about technology. Um, yes. So they're, oh my God! What a great moment. Yeah, they're putting in the telegram poles, which, I mean, so I think last season I was very com- like I was very confident that the the whole scene where there's that guy who's randomly harassing Bill Hickok is just like the quintessential. Is it um, Jack McCall? It might even be Jack McCall. Um, who's harassing him when he's helping to build uh, the hardware store. It is Jack McCall. It I is think. Jack McCall, yeah. yeah. And um, he's just like a quintessential internet troll. Um, <laughs> and of course, you know, what, what happens eventually is he ends up killing someone. Like, I mean, it's perfect. I mean, it's so, uh, 
it's so uh, apt. But and then here we have this great reflection on all sorts of things, but you know, certainly it feels like the internet, uh, where you have this. Uh, uh, um, well, first you have Al saying that uh, he he refers to the telegrams and he says messages from invisible sources. Uh, what yep. some people think of his progress, <laughs> um, and. Uh, you know, and it's, so it's this commentary and like anonymous, you know, like sort of, you know, magical, you know, messages coming out of, out of thin air and, you know, in the age of Twitter and everything else, it's, uh, it feels very pertinent. But then he, he has this whole discussion with, with Dan about it. And Dan's like, yeah, it's great. I mean, you know, it's just, it's keeping things going forward. And, you know, sometimes you get a message from somebody you don't know. And, you know, this will make things easier to do that. And he's like, when was the last time you got a message from somebody you don't know? And it was like, it was bad news. And he's like, exactly, it was bad news. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, pretty much, you know. And he's like, you know, how much do you need to know about what's going on in the world is, is a really good question. And, you know, it's a question we struggle with today with our, like, endless onslaught of information and updates and notifications and, and news stories and headlines and things, which I am incredibly guilty of, as you well know. But And as anybody who follows me on any sort of social media knows. Um, but, uh, you know, it's just a great observation of, and that analogy, but just in the context of the telegram, uh, which we think of as so antiquated, but I'm sure felt like exactly that at the time. I do want to say just before we go, um, just back to that scene, the way that Al's temper rises to the point that he gets like the the whole um, build of that scene is that he's getting upset over increasingly petty things. Like at first, he's mad about the commissioners, which is reasonable for that character to be really to be upset about that and then it's you know whatever and it's the tell then he looks out and is like oh those that stupid telegraph that's bad for me too and then finally it comes down to Seth and he's like and it's and that goddamn sheriff and his stupid affair right and it's like it's the it, the whole fight the whole conflict of this episode is born from just Al working out his and really what it comes down to is he has a kidney stone and that's right. making him upset it's making him upset and it's also you know He's in a, in a much bigger and much more significant and consequential way. He's also worried about his 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 control over Deadwood and over his mm-hmm. his life, similar to Sai, but Sai is really just focused on this like very small interpersonal conflict. Whereas Al's like, literally, they're going to come and put laws in here, and we're all going to be out of a job. So I'm concerned about this. <laughs> it is a <laughs> serious thing. So they're both dealing with this, but yes, and you have this sort of manifested kidney stone, which for all we know is born out of the stress he's he's generating from this uh from this news um because we haven't seen where that really where that where that started he sort of the, just the episode started with him you know sort of in pain um or about halfway through the episode we, we see him in pain um something i wanted to mention it feels extremely um dismissive not to have mentioned this and i feel uh, quite bad for not saying it before but he isn't in this episode but uh ricky jay who played eddie sawyer i don't know if you knew he also passed away this um in, oh. in november I didn't know he 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 was. I didn't realize he was on the show at all. Actually, yeah. Well, he, he oh, that's right. He played Eddie Sawyer. Yeah, I mean, because he's not in this in this episode. And he, they do talk about him though. They do talk about him, and that's right. Um, because he, I think he, the cards. Oh my God. Right? Yeah, right. He's Doesn't the, he do something with in real life? Right. He was a magician, and he was in this. In this, he was sort of did sleight of hand, and you know, um, I for the same forgot about that for the same purpose. And I think I can't remember what happened last season. I think he. He gives the money and then he leaves because he knows that Sai will kill him or something, or he thinks Sai. So we're looking at the. It's funny you mentioned that we're looking at the HBO, um, like they have a synopsis of every right. episode, and it refers to him as the recently departed dealer. So I don't know if that means that he died 
or that he left. Because recently departed is kind of a wasn't kind killed. of a suggestive phrase. He wasn't killed. I know that. Um, unless he was killed between seasons, but I don't. He wasn't killed between. Uh, I mean, he wasn't. Uh, the character wasn't killed. Um, but I think he left. He, he basically gives Joe. Oh, you know, yeah. You know what? The next line actually is the line from from Sai. He says that he flees. He flees. So he, right. he, he left. That's right. He left because once Sai figured out what he did, he was like, "He'll kill me if he finds this out." So I'm just yeah. gonna peace out. Um, but uh, you know, another another uh, very sad um, uh, loss uh, for for Ricky J. And then uh, you know, as we said, Powers Booth. Um, so all all quite uh, you know. But uh, so. Not to minimize it, but like it's been, it's it's crazy that a movie is even coming out at this point. You know, I'm glad Ian McShane's still around, and uh, Timothy Oliphant and all these other characters and all these other actors, um, and I'm sure they're gonna have a, a really great reunion. But I'm sure it'll be it'll be sad not to have uh, yeah. a couple of those actors. There. It's interesting. I was looking at some of the comments they've made about the movie so far, and the one of the producers said that it's. She made this comment that was like, "This movie is really about you know the passing of time and how that affects people." And I'm like, "Oh, of course. Well, of course it is. <laughs> a decade and a half later, you have to make it about that. That's what Twin. That's what Twin Peaks had to do. They couldn't do their third season they had planned because it was 25 years later. Yeah, exactly. They had to make it about oh yeah, the passing of time really affects us all. You have to do that. Yeah, obviously. Now I will say so between season one and season two, you're going from you know the the camera. Everyone's blown away by the camera, and then the telegram." Um, and you know who knows what other technological advances uh, they're going to jump. I assume twelve, ten, twelve years later in Deadwood. What's that going to look like? Yeah. Um, and they're in a bit of a pickle because, like, you know, if you make it look too different, it doesn't look like Deadwood. Um, on one hand, like, how long was Deadwood a frontier town before it was just a regular town? And you know, on the other hand, you know, so you don't want people, you know, we don't want fans to be like, what is this in Deadwood? But on, like, on the other hand, you can't pretend like it's season four in a movie. Because <laughs> yeah. I think people would be like, oh, yeah, but they're all old now. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, I'm very excited for the movie. Uh, we Part of the reason we wanted to come back to the show was to uh, catch up on the show and make sure that we're caught up through season but we'll 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 do season two. We'll see how season three looks and and see if we can do that as well. Um, something else to keep an eye out for uh, if you're uh, if you're listening to this is uh, our Game of Thrones podcast, Stark Contrast, which uh, should be starting up in the not too distant future after after we finish season two of Deadwood. Um, should line up just about exactly. I think, it should. Yeah, I think, it, I think it lines up really nicely. And then that leaves us with the last season of Game of Thrones. Um, I I hesitate. Did you to... see? Sorry to cut you Go off, ahead. but did you see the Onion article? That the headline was Game of Thrones fans excited for series to be over. Yeah, you sent you sent that to me. I that's sent right. it to you. you yeah, sent I sent that it to me. You, yeah. and I was like, "Yep, that's about that's about the size of it." <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, well, lucky for you, they've got a whole other prequel series ready to go, and they've already cast yeah. it. So you know, I only have six whole movies to sit through, apparently. <laughs> oh yeah, that's what they said about the final. <laughs> And you know, I gotta say this other thing about uh, we're not gonna go off on a tangent about Game of Thrones, but this in general, I'll make this general point. It's like a movie, or it, you know, the last six episodes are like movies. It's like why is movie your aspiration? It's such a weird way to look at television. Well, why yeah, it it's also kind of yeah. It's also like well, it, you know, the the line that line is so and again like we. God, this got talked to death with Twin Peaks season yes, three yeah. because that that was one continuous. St- like I, I put that on my films of the year list because it's yeah, I considered it one continu- as con- one continuous thing because the way I look at it is like look, the distinction is really so arbitrary. Like 
if I if I watch an episode of TV in a movie theater, does that make it a movie? If if because oh, they played Game of they played Game of Thrones episodes in IMAX theaters a couple years ago, did that make it into a movie? But I mean, you like, you studied film, like you know, what is a movie? <laughs> that's I mean, what I'm saying. You're, yeah, you're watching like, you're watching a, an abstract film where someone scratched film and made it like make these weird farting sounds. They're not supposed to be farting sounds, but that's what it sounds like when you scratch film. That's what Stan Brackage did. He farted yeah. directly onto the film. Did did he really? <laughs> he might have. <laughs> Stan Brackage was a weird dude. He might have. Got himself killed using like toxic paint. I mean, the dude was weird. Um, but no, there was a there's a video that's lit, and it, there's no recorded audio. The guy just scratched the audio track on the film. For those of you uh, who don't I know, brought up Stan Brackage because he created films by scratching onto the celluloid. So there you go. Yeah, that's another thing that people did. And like, is that film? I mean, what, what the hell is that? Right? And I sure. I, I, I mean, anything is. I think if, it's if film. It's, I if I can broad, watch it. Yeah, you and I have a very broad understanding of this, but like, I think people like to categorize things. Um, so they're like, it's just, <laughs> just cinema. It's just fi- you know. This Look, is- uh, here's the thing. If I can log it on Letterboxd, it's a film. And if I can't, then it's TV. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so yeah. So anyway, so that's a weird, weird phenomenon. I can't promise we're gonna do the Game of Thrones prequel series probably because uh, it will kill Josh. Um, I don't know if I'm gonna watch that fucking thing, man. I guess it'll have to see how it shapes well, up. Well, the worst but... part about it is that I will say that as much as we don't like Game of Thrones, and it is still immensely popular, people are definitely. For various reasons, some people have weird reasons for it, but a lot of people are on the same page. On like seven, season seven was mostly garbage, right? Like, <laughs> and it's been pretty bad for a long time. But I think even the like broad populace is coming to the conclusion that like, yeah, let's wrap it up because you guys like, and, and they all attribute it to once you ran out of material from the books, it got bad. And it was like, well, it wasn't great before then, but but yeah, fine. It did get significantly worse as things made less and less sense, and they just sort of catapulted through narratives and things. So um, remember when John and all those people like sat on a frozen lake for days, yeah, waiting for help to arrive. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No. That I just remembered that that happened last season. That whole thing happens, and then the the pulling the ice. Somehow pulling the chains out of the ice, that dramatic like scene at the end where it's like the chains would rip through the ice. like it it doesn't make any physical sense like I don't like it's obviously fantasy but like ice is ice <laughs> like no just it's magic just it's magic ice it's magic ice that doesn't <laughs> doesn't work like, like react to friction ice. of pulling a, <laughs> a giant metal chain to pull up a drag you know the whole thing so um anyway <laughs> we will talk so much more about game of thrones but it comes back we will just we remember just... what happened last season i can't wait for how they're gonna wrap this up it's uh, gonna be so stupid it's, it's gonna be great it's gonna be amazing and uh yeah and they've really built it up but anyway so the point is that people aren't really so uh, what i was gonna say is that we have no way of evaluating if the prequel series will be any good because i feel like people will just go crazy for it um but maybe they'll be you know the walking dead is immensely popular even despite the fact that it's like even the people who like it have admitted it's kind of crap um especially at this point um but they made all these other spin-off series and they didn't they didn't get nearly as much attention so maybe when they make a spin-off game of thrones series people will be like yeah fatigue i'm not interested anymore you um, know what i think and again not to we should wrap this up but <laughs> yeah <Deadwood. laughs> i kind of i kind of get the feeling with the prequel thing that people will not be into it because like game of thrones has reached a fever pitch over time as people have become invested in it right and i think people will look at a prequel series and a lot of people will be like I don't really know any of these characters. I don't really know this story. Like, I don't know if I want to spend the time that I spent on Game of Thrones to get invested in this story right. and these people. And with and with no books to go off. And people just of. exhaust. Exactly. Yeah. And, and yeah. Like people. 
there was also, yeah, there was the promise of an ending, I think, with the books. Whereas, you know, who knows how long they'll drag out this prequel thing. Exactly. And and just as a final point on that, you know, we don't know, uh, you know, it might be in the show's interest that there's no books to go off of so they can go at their own pace. They don't have this weird, like, herky-jerky, like, jamming a book into one season then spreading the next one out over two seasons and then there's no more books, so now we're just going to do everything at light speed, like, that kind of thing. Hmm. Um, maybe they can be a bit more even-paced and maybe it'll come out to be a better show, you know, for it. I, I literally have no idea. But, at the very least, we're going to finish Game of Thrones, we'll do Deadwood, and then uh, uh, with Hoople Heads, and uh, we'll see wh- where that takes us from there. But uh, it was great to do uh, this episode with you, Josh. It's 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 been far too long, and I look forward to doing more. As do I. Great. And uh, so next week we'll have part two of uh, A Lie Agreed Upon, and uh, and uh, we'll see what, uh, what shenanigans these fellas get up to them. All right. <laughs> Take it easy. <laughs> you too.